Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 328. It was the only time I'd ever heard him sound like the son of a duke. Explain yourself! The man holding the parchment eyed Simon calmly, then reached inside his cloak and brought out a stout iron rod with a band of gold around each end. Sim paled a bit as the grim man held it up for everyone in the room to see. Not only was it every bit as threatening as the constable's cudgels, the rod was an unmistakable symbol of his authority. The man was a sumner for the Commonwealth Courts. Not just a regular sumner either. The gold bands meant he could order anyone to stand before the iron law. Priests, government officials, even members of the nobility up to the rank of baron. At this point, Anchor made his way through the crowd as well. He and Sim looked over the Sumner's document and found it to be very legitimate and official. It was signed and sealed by all manner of important people in Imra. There was nothing to be done. I was going to be brought up against the Iron Law. Everyone in Anchor's watched as I was bound hand and foot in chains. Some of them looked shocked, some confused, but most of them simply looked frightened. When the constables dragged me through the crowd toward the door, barely a handful of my audience were willing to meet my eye. They marched me the long way back to Imra, over Stonebridge and down the flat expanse of the Great Stone Road. All the way, the winter wind chilled the iron around my hands and feet until it burned and bit and froze my skin. The next morning, Sim arrived with Elkshadal and matters slowly became clear. It had been months since I had called the name of the wind in Imra after Ambrose broke my loot. The masters had brought me up on charges of malfeasance and had me publicly whipped at the university. It had been so long ago that the lash marks on my back were nothing more than pale silver scars. I had thought the matter resolved. Apparently not. Since the incident had occurred in Imra, it fell under the jurisdiction of the Commonwealth Courts. We live in a civilized age, and few places are more civilized than the university and its immediate environs. But parts of the Iron Law are left over from darker times. It had been a hundred years since anyone had been burned for consortation or unnatural arts, but the laws were still there. The ink was faded, but the words were clear. Ambrose wasn't directly involved, of course. He was much too clever for that. This sort of trial was bad for the university's reputation. If Ambrose had ended the page... I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. And Nick is still away. He is. Uh, Perhaps he is enduring his own trial right now before the Iron Law. Uh Uh-oh. So this is a very exposition-heavy page, and it is an example of telling rather than showing. Mm -hmm. And I was actually talking about this with Alice, uh, my partner, earlier today, that some a, a habit that I have been trying to break myself of, because when I was a younger person, I really internalized the writing rule of showing rather than telling. And because that rule is there for a reason, like I really internalized it. But you know what? Sometimes it's fine to just like not have to be clever or fancy and you can just tell the reader what they need to know in order to understand what's going on. And that's fine. And that's what Rothfuss is doing here. This exposition is also not the way that a lot of when the the show don't tell thing comes into play. It's a lot because the exposition can be kind of boring. But in this case, there's a lot to talk about within this exposition. Mm hmm. Yeah. A lot of our exposition-heavy pages are pages that we often don't spend too much time talking about, but I, I feel like for this particular page, there's a lot to delve into. Yeah, well, 
I think that the show don't tell rule really applies when you are describing like characters behavior like a good example of implementing show don't tell is like you don't say you know quoth was mad you say you know quoth snarled quoth's brow furrowed quoth yelled and then we learn through context that he's mad right we're being shown his anger but in a situation like this like the exposition is happening in the context of a scene where the iron law has become important. And now Rothfuss is having, is explaining to us, like we see him hold up the iron rod first and we as readers can make the intuitive connection. Oh, this is a Mountie or a Toronto police officer flashing their badge at you. Yeah. And then, but we've already made that connection. And then he clarifies for us what exactly it means. And it's inter- and then there's like another layer that we can sort of delve into because when he says, not just a regular Sumner either, the gold bands meant he could order anyone to stand before the iron law, priests, government officials, even members of the nobility. Well, then we can infer from that, okay, so he's a special Sumner. Regular Sumners can't order priests, government officials, or members of the nobility up before the iron law, which means that there is a kind of like, class hierarchy of who is subject to the iron law right and like you probably have to have really excellent proof to be able to employ one of these special summoners right so that tells us a lot about like the attitude toward the law in temerant and how it's different and like how the iron law is applied and thus i think that explains a lot of why people are scared yeah that they would bring someone so powerful to come collect quoth well, yes, but I was actually thinking of it in terms of the implication here is that anyone can be brought up by the Iron Law for a lot less, like, probably you don't need that much evidence to bring up your average person up against the Iron Law. They had to get a special guy to bring in Quoth, and he's the same guy that they'd get to bring in, like, a Baron or something. So what that tells us is that, like, the Iron Law, there's a class system at play where, like, people who aren't politically powerful or wealthy are going to be a lot more subject to the abuses of P- of the iron law, right? They're like, it's way more likely that some poor farmer will get charged with a crime than it is that a baron will. It's almost like real life. Uh, well, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> where, I was, where I was going. It's not explicit in our legal codes, right? But it is implicit that like, yeah, if you're poor, you can't afford the best lawyer money can buy. You can afford the overworked public defender who's going to probably try to do their best, but they have 60 other cases to do. Yeah. Right. You know, you're and like you're only going to get stopped, by you're probably going to get stopped by a cop more if you are poor or racialized or whatever. And I'm sure that that like that's just like more explicit in the way the iron law is applied here. Yeah. And that explains to me, like, why everyone is, in Anchor is, is so afraid. Not just because they're cops, and we all know that- They have a, are. I could be next feeling. Exactly, exactly. They don't want to draw the attention of this guy in case they get, like, charged as accomplices or, or you know, you know, conspirators or something. Yeah, they just don't, don't want anything to do with it. When Quoth says that none of them are willing to meet his eyes, I totally understand that because- why would they <laughs> like yeah that's a precarious situation it's unclear how much he judges them for that not not being willing to come to his defense like the only people who are willing to come to his defense are 
Sim and Anchor, who are his friends, kind of. Like, kind of in Anchor's case, definitely in Sim's case. Yeah. Everyone else is just there to hear him play music. So maybe, he doesn't tell us this, but maybe Quove is thinking, you shitheads, you're fine to like come and watch me play music, but like when the cops come to arrest me, not one of you stands up for me. Not one of you says, hey, like I've been to see this guy play before. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who summoned the devil to do crimes. Yeah. Although I think that it is very valid that they not defend him. Well, like how much could you possibly know about someone who you just watch play music at a bar? You don't know what their life is like. You don't know what they're capable or not capable of. You have no proof for or against the thing that they have been charged with. Sure. But I mean, I'll take it one step further than that. Have you ever tried to stop a cop from arresting somebody? Well, obviously not, because they'd probably arrest me too, which is exactly what's happening here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I've definitely seen like the cops arrest people before. And I was definitely like, I'm not going to get involved there. I don't want any part of that. Yeah. So I think like for Quoth to judge people like that, if if he were, I don't know if I would be surprised because I feel like Foth can sometimes be very judgy. But I also don't think he would judge people like that because he would probably understand the precarious situation that they are in as much as his own. Yes. I feel like his logic would, would help him out there, but maybe not. Well, I just want to say like he, he might understand and still be mad about it because when you're in trouble, you want people to come to your help. Yeah, I guess. It depends on how worked up he is, because if he's not very worked up and he's thinking logically, I don't think he'd hold it against him, them. But if he is worked up and he's not thinking logically, then he might get angry and blame them. And then later have to like walk it back. 3PO, tell them that if you don't do as I ask, I'll become angry and use my magic. (laughs) I forgot that that existed. That's right. We could still do Star Wars riffs on this podcast. Well, you can do them and I will laugh at them, but I I can't remember most of them. That's all I've ever wanted. I And then on the bottom of the page, after what Nick calls the Tilda brand, he gets into like pure exposition territory for a couple of paragraphs, but that's just because he's trying to catch us up. Just so everyone remembers, I did like, I did some naming Broke Ambrose's loot and like Broke Ambrose's arm. I thought that was all resolved, but I guess it's not. And we've also, like, we've heard them talk about before that, like, there are laws on the books for charging people with doing, like, evil magic, but they haven't been used in a long time because the university made very sure that they wouldn't, you know, encourage that sort of thing anymore. Quoth is just reminding us, like, hey, like, these laws are still on the books and they can, you know, you can still be charged with them. Just like, just like, for example... Edward Snowden was charged with the Espionage Act, an act that was written in 19, like 18 or 1919 in the context of World War One to charge, ostensibly to charge people who were spying on America for the Kaiser. But what it was actually used to do was charge uh, communists and socialists who were agitating against the war. And then no one else got charged with that Espionage Act law for like decades until Snowden. So it was like, you know, kind of a cockamamie charge to use on him in the first place. Hmm, I see. I guess really what should have happened there is they should have made a related but more modern law to replace that one or just scrapped it all together. (laughs) 
right? Like, technically what he did was illegal. Like, that's how they could charge him with it. But, like, that's a stupid lie. You, n- you should never should have written it. Yeah. And then right on the end of the page, he sort of catches us up and he starts delivering new information by telling us his interpretation of... What he thinks happened. Yeah. How did he come to be charged with this? And I do appreciate that for the first little while, they, they charge him, but Quoth doesn't immediately make the connection. Oh, I'm being charged with this because of that thing I did. He doesn't, like, he has no more idea what's going on than we do uh, at first. Yeah. Which I think is nice as a reader. It it kind of feels good to be as lost as the character you're reading about for a minute. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially because we just had a chapter where Quoth definitely knew more than we did. Also, somehow, once we know more about it, it's it feels less scary. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's just because, like, knowledge is power. <laughs> Think about, like, that's why one of the things we have that ostensibly makes us a civilized society is that the cops, when they arrest you, they have to tell you why. Yeah, for every TV show, they have to say, you have, you know, you're being charged with this, that, and the other thing. And they're usually a little bit more specific than you're being charged with, like, consorting with the devil. Yeah. But, <laughs> and it is really scary to be, like, subject to the power of an unaccountable, like, state apparatus that has the power of life or death over you and not even know why. And Quoth has particular reason to be frightened because his people uh, were persecuted and hunted for sport. at points in the past yep also i think that anyone who still has the amir fresh in their mind might be thinking how scary they must be in contrast to these guys especially the guys with the with the hand tattoos because they were really above the law that's a really good point and i wonder if we're meant to draw that subconscious association between the amir and the kirade in particular who were basically judge, jury, and executioner and could do whatever they wanted without consequence for the greater good. And these guys. Yep. All good things to think on. Also, they treat him very cruelly. They don't seem to, like, they bind him, but they don't let him, like, put on a coat or anything. This is totally how they treat everybody, I think. I, I, I'm i pretty sure that this is just how they would treat everyone. I don't think they're being particularly mean to Quoth. I just think they're jerks. Yeah, well, that's that's my point. Like, they march him all the way to Imra, basically in, like, his indoor clothes, and it's the middle of winter. I mean, they don't explicitly say they don't let him put on his coat, do they? They don't, but they manacle his hands and feet, so he couldn't put on his coat or anything like that. They could have theoretically, like, had someone just drape it over his shoulders. Everyone at Anchors watched as I was bound, hat and foot in chain, and then they drag him through the crowd toward the door and march him all the way back to Imra. Okay, so that sounds like he doesn't get a coat. At no point does anybody... Like, I think if someone did do that, then he'd make a point of it because he pointed out that none of them would even look him in the eye. Yeah. So if somebody does have the presence of mind or the kindness to, like, grab a coat and throw it over his shoulders, I think he would mention it. I don't think they do. I think he's marched all the way to Imra in basically his, like, indoor shirt and pants. All right. I'm still not convinced because it's not explicit either way. So I am on the fence. As per usual. How tiresome. As to the coat, this can be a listener's write in, coat or no coat. Are you team coat or team no coat? With a C, not a K. (laughs) Write in with the correct answer on tomorrow's page. Of the way.